Welcome and bienvenue, welcome. Fremder, étranger, stranger. Glücklich zu sehen, je suis enchanté. Happy to see you, bleibe rest to stay. Welcome and bienvenue, welcome. Im Kabarett, au Kabarett, du Kabarett. Meine Damen und Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today we're traveling back to 1972 and revisiting the movie Cabaret and I'm happy to be joined by my friend, usual Marvel correspondent, but she's changing up things with us today and that's Maya. Maya, thanks for joining. Welcome in, bienvenue, welcome. <laughs> yeah, so Maya obviously is uh, a bit of a Marvel scholar, but she's also a musical theater scholar. So when I was looking for something to watch in the HBO Max library with her, I thought, oh, I bet Maya knows something, a thing or two about Cabaret, and that might have been underselling it on my part. <laughs> so uh, yes, Cabaret was released in 1972. It's based on a, the play Cabaret by Joe Masteroff, which is in turn based on a book slash short story called Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood. The movie was directed by famed choreographer Bob Fosse. The movie focuses on an American woman named Sally Bowles, played by Liza Minnelli in an Oscar-winning performance. She lives in Berlin and performs at the Kit Kat Club. Uh, a British PhD student, Brian Roberts, moves into her boarding house and they become friends. Eventually lovers, that is complicated when a rich, white, Aryan-looking dude named Maximilian von Hlene appears to be wooing Sally, but maybe doing a little bit more than that, which we'll talk about. There is another storyline involving Sally and Brian's friend, who courts a wealthy Jewish heiress, initially for her money, but then develops feelings for her, but that is complicated by the fact that this is early 1930s Germany, and the growing specter of the Nazis is evident throughout the movie, which I would say makes this feel a lot different from a lot of other musicals. And we are, throughout the movie, cutting back and forth to a lot of musical acts, which I'm sure we'll also talk about with Maya. Maya, like I said when I was just opening the podcast, I had a feeling that like you might have something to say, a thing or two to say about this movie. And as someone that kind of grew up as a bit of a musical theater nerd, it seems like you actually have quite a bit of firsthand experience with the content. So I was wondering before we like totally dive into the movie, can you talk about your relationship with the source material and just what your level of familiarity was and what your relationship was like just with cabaret itself as a play and as a movie over the years sure so when i was actually um a kid i was about 10 11 years old uh, there was a little musical called chicago that became a movie i saw it five times in theaters a best picture winning movie a best picture win exactly i think one of the only musicals to win best picture as well so i fell in love with that movie i saw it five times in theaters <laughs> and my parents sort of got an inkling that i kind of liked musical theater so they introduced me to another Bob Fosse choreographed slash directed movie called Cabaret. And I was about maybe, I'm going to say 13 years old when I saw it for the first time. It took a while for me to actually understand a lot of the elements of the movie, but I never forgot, you know, maybe this time or Cabaret, Sally Bowles' um, two hit songs that she just blows the stage away with. And I've actually sung both of those songs at auditions in my theater past <laughs> and it's 
those songs are very powerful, but they're also done so differently in the musical themselves that I like how the movie sort of stands aside from the depiction in the actual um, stage setting, which I have never seen live. And I think that if you're looking back on, you know, the most famous movies of all time um, that are of the musical ilk, you'll have Fiddler on the Roof, you'll have Chicago, and then you'll have Cabaret. I think those three stand above all. Um, if you're not including Disney movies, and I think Sound of Music will fall under that as well. Yeah. And I should also add that as you're kind of showing how it or explaining how it stands apart from and it is kind of in a class of its own with the genre, it actually I learned earlier today. I don't know if this still holds or it's just at the time. I think it still holds. It has more Oscar wins than any movie to ever not win Best Picture. Correct. Yeah. Eight Oscar wins, did not win Best Picture. I mean, it had to, it went up against this little known movie called The Godfather, so no shame in that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, poor Godfather, which obviously the second one is the best of the, um, the trilogy, but you, when you have a movie like The Godfather and a movie like Cabaret, you would never think that the two of them would um, go back to back against each other at the Oscars, and then Cabaret would win. I mean, it, you've got two kinds of people, the people who think that Cabaret should have won Best Picture and the people who think that The Godfather should have won Best Picture. So it, it is what it is. The 70s were a crazy time. I guess Cabaret, like you said, Cabaret it won more Oscars than The Godfather, just didn't win the Best Picture Oscar. But there again, there's no shame in that. And it won all these other categories, too, or I'm sure The Godfather had its own amount of nominations. Uh, Bob Fosse won Best Director. So as celebrated as Francis Ford Coppola was, it's, a, 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 it's nothing to sneeze at itself. I'm, I'm kind of curious because that was the one thing that kind of struck me, and I'm someone that's probably not as well-versed in just, uh, musicals as you are. It's just not always my kind of thing, um, these kind of movies. I, well, another movie I actually couldn't help but think about, though, as I was watching this movie because it was watching on HBO Max, and I had watched another uh, a Best Picture-winning musical on HBO Max earlier this year was an American. American in Paris. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's some similarities in that, like, it was just, uh, you know, that one was a best picture winner from the, I think the fifties. Uh, but you know, said 51, I think it's like 51 or something. And, but I mean, yeah. about, about, I mean, that's kind of centers on a, a largely not centers on, but like there's a female character that's kind of like, you know, taking charge and kind of trying to, you know, woo a male character for a part of it. And it's also a musical. And so I was, I was just kind of thinking about that as I was watching, but I'm like, that movie is actually really cheerful and really funny. And not that Cabaret doesn't have its funny parts, but Cabaret is ultimately like rather tragic. And I was curious how you think about it just in comparison to other musicals in that, like, I don't know if there's a lot of musicals like this one in that, like, yeah, it has its light parts, but it has like such a, such a serious backdrop and how, how you think the movie uses that to its, to its advantage and how you think about it compared to other musicals in light of that. Cause having a movie that has like such exuberant, fun musical set pieces, but ultimately has the backdrop of like early Nazi Germany. It's kind of weird and very unique to me based on other musicals I've seen. I, I'm going to agree that it's, it's unique in certain ways, but it also takes a lot of elements from another musical that was made into a movie that, you know, premiered a year before that, which is Fiddler on the Roof, which is the impending, when, when you have a, a, a country or you have a society, in the case, the Kit Kat Club, that um, starts off with um, a Nazi character getting kicked out, and then mm-hmm. by the end of the movie, the entire audience is filled with um, Nazi sympathizers. Yep. I think that you use the direction in the movie versus a musical element to show the increasing impending doom. 
everyone knows what's going to happen at the end of the movie. It's the end of the Weimar Republic. So historically speaking, that's when you start, you know, the Third Reich rising in Germany. And and it's going to eventually... It, it's going to eventually cause, you know, the destruction that we know in our historical times. But in terms of a musical sense, the way that they they have a dichotomy of the what's going on in the film versus the songs. The songs are done in a very cheerful way and mm-hmm. in kind of a, in spite of itself in an ironic way, because the content is very dark. And the one thing that I think I would probably have changed with that is um, cabaret. The song should be done in a little bit more of a dark way. Sally Bowles was way too cheerful by the end of that movie. She just got an abortion. She just said goodbye to Brian and she sings life as a cabaret in a joyful way in the musical. It's actually not how it's typically done. Hmm. She is, you know, it's a very, very dark song basically the entire accompaniment of her life is met at the end with her having this abortion and um, her talking about how a friend of hers um, died and people laughed at her and she had to take that moment in order to defend her honor. Obviously, it's an allegory to Sally herself. So why is she cheerful at the end of the movie? That's the one thing that fell off by it. But if you really look into the irony of music used in this film, it, it is is very colorfully, eloquently done, and it is so well-matched by the direction. Well, yeah, and I, it's funny you mentioned that about just the tone at the end. And I think... Not that I think it makes it the right choice to make the song that tone, but I think it's something that's kind of present throughout is that you're not really sure what tone any of these characters should be striking as they encounter various signs of, like, the impending Nazi regime. I, I don't know if I talk, I was trying to think, go back and listen. I know I talked about this on one of my other podcasts. It could have even been on the my old podcast, but I feel like I talked about it in the context of some movie where it kind of became a relevant question to ask. Like, not that you and I as Jewish people ever really have to think about this ourselves, but I think a question that a lot of people, like, it'd be useful to ask to themselves these days, especially in our country over the last four years, is that if you were just a, just a regular Gentile during like the Holocaust living in Eastern Europe, like what would you have done? And I, I, th- I think it's something that I think a lot of people think about. They would like to think they would act a certain way, but you never really know until you're actually put in that position. And I thought it was interesting revisiting this point in time specifically. Because, I mean, there's obviously so many World War II movies out there, so many Holocaust movies out there. But, like, how many do you act? How many are there actually that, like, take place in Germany, but, like, end before World War II even begins? Like, that's, like, not like that's a. Me. Sound of music. Right. Sound of Music technically takes place in Austria, but the the theme itself being the same. Right. And I, I almost think even maybe some of those characters in The Sound of Music are maybe a little more even directly confronted with it in, in, in some ways than maybe the characters in these movies because it's something that they're aware of, they comment on in this movie, and you get to watch these characters like – kind of shrug it off unfortunately and you know make comments like uh yeah you know maybe the nazis will get rid of the communists and then we can control them and put them in their place and it'll, it'll be whatever and they're i mean it obviously becomes apparent that's not necessarily going to be the case as the movie goes on but at the same time the movie is largely about these people that are like kind of compartmentalizing and just trying to kind of move on and make the most of their life and it almost in a way makes sense that someone might be able to go on stage and try and like put on a show and kind of 
act like nothing's happening. You know, it's, it, in a way, I'm just trying to say, I guess, maybe I kind of see what you're saying, given what Sally had going on in her personal life by the end. But at the same time, it doesn't exactly ring false in the context of the rest of the movie based on kind of how they were having to like avoid a lot of the like, harsh stuff going on in the real world. I would agree with that. And as somebody who whose grandfather actually was a, a Jewish, a blonde, blue eyed Jewish man living in Germany in the 1930s, the um, the nonchalantness of what was happening was actually a very real thing that happened amongst the Gentile population for the first part. There was pretty much like a take it or leave it because, you know, Adolf was. Obviously, uh, Adolf Hitler was obviously, you know, in power at the time, but it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't, the way that they characterize it in the film was, was very true to form. And it also came very realistically in the same way. Like, imagine you have like a Nazi squad car just driving in through your neighborhood. That's how my grandfather described what it was in Germany at the time that you, that you just saw it more. And it got to the point where it wasn't just a coincidence. So they weren't just passing through Like they were patrolling. I'm guessing you've been on like a, I'm sure you probably have before. I don't know if we've ever talked about it ourselves, but I'm sure you've been on some kind of Holocaust trip before where you've seen concentration I- camps. I did not do March of the Living. I think it was a little, it was too rough for me in eighth grade to, to conceptualize it, so I never did it. I've been to Germany before. I obviously, at being half Israeli, I've been many times to Israel, including a couple of years ago I went for birthright. Um, I did got, get to go to uh, Yad Vashem Museum, and I also went to the Holocaust Museum um, in Miami and in Washington, D.C. I didn't even know they had one in Miami. You'll have to find out. I'll have to find out more about that for me sometime. They have a very lovely monument. It's in Miami Beach. Gotcha. So the creepiest. I mean, I I went on. I, I never did March of the Living. I went on a. Uh, I went on a trip with my family uh, summer after my junior year of high school, and the creepiest part of the trip was in Munich when we saw Dachau, because. Uh, huh. Dachau is like like a lot of the concentration camps you might go to if you ever end up doing one of those trips. They're like kind of what you would think, and that they're like secluded and pretty well hidden, and and yeah. kind of out, almost out in the country a little bit or something like that. Dachau is like basically in downtown Munich, and it is almost creepy, like how close it feels like it is to like a lot of the actual regular parts of the city you might just go into and hang out and. Yeah. It's like, wow, like, I mean, because, I mean, you'll hear, like, a lot of people might have said in Germany at the time they had no idea any of this stuff was going on. And if there, if yeah. Dachau wasn't there, like, I might actually can kind of see how that was the case based on where I had to go to to get to the other concentra- concentration camps I saw. But it's like, you can only play so dumb when, like, there's a little concentration camp, like, within your city limits, which is what the case is there. And not that, like, this movie is set in a time when, like, the concentration camps are already, like, put in motion, but it's kind of like, you know, these people are, like, they're trying to kind of at kind trying to live their life and not think too hard about this stuff. Right. And, and the truth is, um, you know, in the time where the, the movie was set, they, there was no, they were, they were putting the, the grounding in place. So there were things that were happening on, um, you know, on the other side and you saw more of like an escalation over, over the years until inevitably, um, the, the events of the, of the Holocaust actually took place. But what's actually ironic, and I and I forgot about this because it feels like the pandemic has been about 11 years. But I was supposed to be in Germany in June um, because this is the this year is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, like the declared end of World War right. II. And I was going for a conference for the American uh, Jewish Committee in Germany, and I was going. We were going to. Um, you know, potentially go to one of the concentration camps. And I was going to go to 
there was like a, a side trip to Paris and I, you know, I completely forgot about that, <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure everything that we are discussing right now would have been something that would have been covered, obviously, historically speaking, being in Berlin, yeah. um, the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, they would have had some sort of, um, you know, bringing up about how the escalation happened. And the truth is Germany has done so much to make reparations um, over the years. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of um, you know, teaching that happens. And truthfully speaking, they're, they're probably the European country that's done the most in order to make reparations for, for what happened. Oh, definitely. Um, and, you know, I, I, find it, I find it very interesting also, um, you know, rewatching this movie, watching it in that in that um, different vein, knowing more about what historically actually happened outside of like, you know, my my sixth grade classroom um, and my my very neophyte knowledge of what happened in um, in, in Europe at the time. And I find it so ironic that there's so many um, elements of, of the music that they um, they brought into it to sort of uh, add some character and color to it. Namely, um, the song where, where Joel Gray is um, with a, a female gorilla, and at the end he says, you know, she doesn't even look that Jewish or something like that. And the entire audience erupts, and I find it so funny that a guy whose birth name is Joel Katz <laughs> in the Kit Kat Club, a, a Jewish, a gay Jewish man is singing this song. It just, it, it brings more of... Um, of an ironic element to the, the movie itself. And, and I find it later on, you know, obviously we're watching this, what it's, it's 2020. We're watching it so many years after it, it almost 50 years later. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and in thinking about that, um, that to this day, th- these jokes are obviously in, in poor taste, but at the same time, you can't help but laugh because what else are you going to do in a time like that? Yeah. I, I no, for sure. I I think you know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, that he, I didn't I didn't know the thing about him being named Joe, Joel Katz. I didn't. I also I mean not surprising, but I, I I didn't know he was gay in real life. I kind of pulled up his Wikipedia and he was married for a bit, but then he ultimately described himself as gay later in life after that marriage. I I I, I find myself like kind of curious. I, is the play that uh, is the play just as sexually forward as the movie? Um, they added some more sexual elements later on. So Joel Gray actually played the MC in the original Broadway cast. He is one of the only people in history to win a Tony and an Oscar for the same role. Hmm. Yul Brenner famously being another one for The King and I. And um, he plays it in a very asexual way. But when they brought Alan Cumming later on, and I think the late 90s is when he was cast um, alongside um, Natasha, gosh, her last name is escaping me, um, the mother from The Parent Trap. Anyway. Richardson. Thank you. So they, they started sexualizing the role of the MC, but Sally Bowles was actually a British um, singer, was not an American singer. And she... I mean, let's be realistic. They're they're kind of in like a smut cabaret club. Like they're they're going to have the um, you know the the sexy outfits and and the sexy dances. But when Bob Fosse kind of took over, they changed some elements of the stage play to mimic the movie, which I think brought more of 
like a signature Fosse style, which is taking a lot from the Flappertys, taking a lot from the 1930s and, and that, um, that sort of style of, um, dance, et cetera. Um, yeah, I was just but, curious. Yeah. Cause like, I just don't, re- I just don't remember seeing that many, that much really any kind of movie or, uh, uh, or TV show from like that time period that was just like, as like sexually progressive and just, I don't know, dealing with anything other than like regular heterosexual people, you know? And I, that was one thing that struck me while watching the movie. And I was curious what your insight was into that. Yeah. It challenged a lot. And and ironically speaking, if, um, that movie was made in the time where it was staged in the 1930s, every single solitary aspect of it between the outfits, between the abortion, between the alcohol, um, the, the, the homosexual relationship, the heterosexual relationship, the menage a trois would have been censored completely censored and it reminds me actually of a of a picture i saw which was um an artist's way of defining the censorship at the time where he basically he encapsulated every single thing that was censored um in film or in um you know television art at the time in this photo and that's what i feel like this movie sort of does it is very um challenging it is very um I'm going to say advanced for his time. And on, on top of that, you have little Liza Minnelli, 26 years old, daughter of America's sweetheart, um, playing the title role. And she had, she'd only really sung in shows with her mom who had passed away before that. Yeah, it's a real shame. Judy Garland passed away like four years before this movie came out. It was really close to getting to see her daughter win an Oscar. I know. And it's the first time she actually sang in, in a movie on screen. So she, she'd acted before, but she never sang on screen like that before. So thinking about it in that way and sort of bringing into life, you know, the, the terrible um, trouble with uh, with alcohol, a lot of the things um, that troubled many of the big actors um, of the, the 40s, 50s, 60s um, was hidden away because of the big studios. And you, you just kind of have everything pushed into the light here and it I, I personally think that the, those daring elements do a, a lot for um, making the movie relevant um, in certain ways in 2020 well Definitely. I mean, and even just obviously, like, I, I don't think we have to worry about America turning into Nazi Germany or anything like that. But I mean, white nationalists have unfortunately kind of mm-hmm. grown their profile in the last few years. And it's, it's, it is kind of like sad that anything like this feels more relevant today than it did at any point in the past in our country. And, and that's for sure. But I, I guess it's funny. We've talked all about this and this side of things. And I think it's really interesting to talk about. And it's really interesting how this movie incorporates all of, the, all of this history into it. But in a way, it kind of does all that impressively as a backdrop to like the, the rest of this story, which we haven't even really talked about all that much. And I, and I was listening to a couple other podcasts and reading a couple other things about the movie where they, where they actually like did the same thing, where they were like almost more preoccupied with discussing the things we just discussed and also the music itself, as opposed to the actual two different love stories going on in the movie. Uh, well, I think it's important to do something like that because let's be realistic. The neo-Nazis of today sing Tomorrow uh, Belongs to Me as if it's not written by two Jewish men. <laughs> For a musical. Right. No, so that, I think it is important to, to talk about it because No, I totally agree. I was I was just using that as like a 
like a segue to ask you about that other stuff because it, it, it's yeah. interesting that like the movie in that first of all that is a really chilling scene when the when the Hitler youth are revealed to be saying that song and that the clever way in which that reveal was made in that scene I agree yeah. but uh what I, I just wanted to ask you more generally like what you actually thought of that th- those other parts of the movie though where you did have like other love stories going on that like have their own arcs throughout this whole entire thing while the movie has all of this other history going on in the background, essentially. Yeah, um, and actually, you you brought up before how Cabaret's um, stage musical is based off of a book. Um, you and I discussed at the beginning of the podcast that book is actually inspired by um, you know real situation. The author, who's um, who's a gay man, um, had a, a good friend of his who's a cabaret singer, and she was she was a very um, I'm not going to say as talented as Liza Minnelli, and that was actually something that um, was brought up, that apparently Liza Minnelli was too talented to play the role of Sally Bowles. Huh. Um, but the original um, person by which it was based um, had a an affair with a, another singer. She got pregnant, and at the abortion, she didn't want to bring the actual father of the child, so she brought um, her gay friend instead, posing as the father of the child, Apparently, he was berated at the hospital for um, forcing her to abandon uh, this pregnancy. And as a result, he wrote a book. And that's how um, the, the original story came about, which, which I find to be very interesting because he, he depicts himself as um, Brian, hmm. who is, a, I'm not going to say gay. He is an openly sexual you know, man who has a relationship both with Sally and with Maximilian. And the fact that he um, personifies himself as as Brian, I, I just find to be very interesting. Yeah, I, and I, I, that was part of why I even asked you, like, just about like, you know, the how different it was that the movie even like had characters like that. I didn't even know if characters that were that you know sexually fluid were in the earlier versions because again, it was just striking to me for something set in the '30s to have uh, just a man that had relations with both sides and talked about it openly like that or both genders and talked about it openly like that. But also just Sally's a character. I mean, she just feels like very, very singular, uh, for any kind of, any kind of woman in popular culture set in that time or even made in the early seventies. Like just what, what, what do you, I just couldn't help but just be like very impressed that like a, such a unique character like that that stood out in a movie like that and was unafraid to talk about just herself. I mean, the other characters in the movie are even kind of taken aback by it. Where you have the Natalia Landauer character who just like looks at her and is like, "I can't believe like you're just so open about all of the sex you have," and is and I and I, I just thought it was really interesting. Like you know, usually like that stuff is kind of in in popular culture from either even set in the seventies, let alone made in the seventies set in the thirties. Like you don't usually have women talking like that. And I thought, wow, this is kind of wild. Cause I really don't feel like I've seen anything that's this old before where there is a character like this. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I guess my question for you is like, do, how do you think of the Sally character now knowing everything you do know about popular culture and having probably watched a lot more movies in the 10, 10 to 15 years since you first learned about Cabaret, what does she mean to you as a character, as someone that is saying her songs? Interesting. That I feel like it's a very 
loaded in a good way question because Sally is. It wasn't a, probably a good question. I just wanted to talk about her more. I wasn't wasn't no, it wasn't a very pointed question. I should have asked you a more specific question, but I wanted to talk about her because we hadn't really actually delved that much into her. But it just feels like a, it's a special character worth kind of just like saying how impressive it was that she was written in that time. Right, and, and it, I feel like it's Sally is basically all of um, the the emotions, the colorized emotions sort of in a, in a human being and very open and without a filter. Mm-hmm. And she's by no means any inspiration. I mean, like if, if you think about yeah, it, definitely wasn't saying she should be a role model, just saying she's yeah, a good character. It's not somebody <laughs> that you want to emulate, but at the same time you, you want to be Liza Minnelli. Granted her, her Eddie Munster haircut is, is a little bit horrid, but it was very, you know, appropriate for the time. And I, and I find it, I, I find it so fascinating that one of the biggest criticisms of her, her role specifically, Liza Minnelli's depiction of Sally Bowles, is that she's too talented. See, and, I, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that until you told me. Yeah, it's it's. I, I find it actually ironic. So the um, one of the um, people who knew the original character that it was based off. Um, who she had a relationship with her grand, uh, sorry, his granddaughter is Olivia Wilde. So oh. there, and he apparently called Liza Nelly's performance vulgar. Hmm. And it was vulgar because it was so outside of how the, the real person, I want to say her name was Julie, um, of how outside of the real characterization uh, she was. But I, I think that that's exactly what it needs to be. It needs to be Liza Minnelli playing Sally Bowles because any other depiction of Sally Bowles is not the same. It is not as characterized. It's not as, as lively. Um, and I think it's because it was, when you're, how do I put it this way? When you're watching the Sopranos, which I just started watching, I don't feel like I'm watching actors. I feel like I'm watching actual characters that their lives are playing. <laughs> when I'm watching this, I'm watching Liza Minnelli playing Sally Bowles in a musical with Joel Grey. Like, it's just, to me, it's, you, you're watching it for her. You're watching it for her performance. She was a star in the making. And as a result of that, Bob Fosse made her his muse. I mean, when when he was married to Gwen Verdon and she was injured in Chicago, he begged her to take over her performance as Roxy Hart with like a week's notice and she crushed it. Mm-hmm. So, so personally speaking, I don't look at the character for inspiration. I look at Liza Minnelli because she was a fashion icon. She was uh, just an inspiration in terms of her personality. Granted, I'm, I'm not necessarily willing to take her, her alcohol and drug addiction as any form of inspiration. But if I'm going to be thinking of like a fun and fancy free, you know, style to do my, my makeup, I will look at her for inspiration. She was just a tour de force for the 70s. Yeah, I, I, I need to watch more of her stuff because I, I honestly haven't besides like this and Arthur. I don't know. I, 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 there's a, there's a lot of work I have to do to kind of bone up on my, uh, my, my musical bona fides. But I, I, I just think it's, I just think it's really cool that she went hearing you explain that, that it was even a more, uh, out there character than what she had been or before. And I think it just, I think it's really, I respect the risk that the movie took in doing that. And I think it paid off. Uh, yeah. even, uh, 
I, I think in some ways it might have even been more forward thinking than it even realized it was at the time. There's a lot of this talk about her like having to put herself out there in uncomfortable ways that she shouldn't have had to to even like try and find more success in her career like they make multiple cracks throughout the movie of her like sleeping with producers and stuff like that and having to even deal with that in a way to try and advance her career and uh there's that there's the even like having an abortion in a movie at that set in the early 70s or set in the 30s but again produced in the early 70s and there weren't that many movies that really directly even made that a part of their plots and that at that point in time i mean that i guess wait i guess i mean i guess roe versus wade was about the exact time that happened but still like it's it's probably a risk just putting that stuff on screen you know what i mean and i i I just really thought it was cool that she like tackled this role and everything that came with it in a time where like i could have easily seen it like having like a, a backlash and i really respected it and i was just like really impressed with her and it's it's interesting what you say about you. You know, you're watching Liza Minnelli play this character as you're watching it, and in like some ways, people might sometimes say like that's like a negative to a film. Like they want to see it be more like The Sopranos, where you just like feel like you're watching characters and you're not even thinking about that. And I think the fact that you're like even cognizant of the fact you're watching Liza Minnelli, but playing a specific part, but the movie is still that good and you're still enjoying it that much, even if it doesn't feel like someone necessarily disappearing into a role. I think that just speaks to the, the gravitas and charisma she brings to it. Right. And I think it's, it's Bob Fosse. I think it is what he does because I, I'm very familiar with his work Mm -hmm. and um, you know, what he's choreographed and what he's directed over the years, it really highlights the, the actors and it highlights their talents. And I think that, Considering this is not the first movie that he directed, but this is definitely the the best movie that he directed. Second would be All That Jazz, which if you haven't had a chance, definitely pick it up. I find it I find it interesting that this this is personally, in my opinion, Bob Fosse's best movie that he directed. He also directed All That Jazz, which if you hadn't had a chance to watch it, it's fantastic. It's about um, it's a I'm going to say it's an autobiography that he uh, created about his um, creation of Chicago while at the same time putting on another show. It's just, it, it was a cluster for his life. And, and the genius that the genius of directing in the eyes of a choreographer, everything for him is a dance. And because everything for him is a dance, he has to highlight the, the dancers and the people who he's highlighting in cabaret, the entire I'm going to say the entire characterization is very much based on fluidity. It's based off of moving effortlessly. You don't have really much tying them back, not even the restrictions of, of, um, of prudency in the time, not even the restrictions of, you know, the Nazi, the impending Nazi regime, like all of that is kind of in the background until the end of the movie where, um, where they say, um, auf Wiedersehen. And then you turn and you, you see a, a, I think it's a brilliantly directed shot. So you have Joel Gray falling into the background. He doesn't even say goodbye. And then it pans to the right. And you you see another entrance. And you think that he's going to come out and say something. But it just continues. And then you only see the audience. The audience members that are not obviously wearing Nazi uniform are staring blankly to the right or to the left at the stage. But the Nazis are staring at you. And I, that to me, that's a dance. That is something that only someone who has that artistic mindset and that choreography to really, to, um, to draw attention to the players at hand, 
he he'd been doing that the entire movie. It just it's slowly coming up. It, it's almost like you're you're um, in Swan Lake, where you have the black swan eventually just come up and like hit you in the face with a with a fantastic number. That's what that was to me, and I. I, I personally believe that the movie would, would not have been the same with any other director. Um, I would love to have seen what, it, what the music would have been like if he were the original choreographer and director. Hmm. I, I think it would be a completely different depiction. Really? Um, and, and on top of that, the music that they used in that, um, Kander and Ebb, who were the, um, the lyricist and composer, they actually added songs into the movie that were not in the original musical. And then when the original musical came for a revival, they changed it and they added the songs from the movie. I think it's one of the only times where the movie is actually better than the musical. Interesting. I, 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 and I have not seen all that jazz. I, it's like on my list to like do really soon. And I'm sure like, it'd be interesting to kind of like get a bigger picture of what, uh, what Bob Fosse is like was capable of because I mean like I thought the choreography is really good in the movie too and it'd be it's interesting to think there's even a different version of that in there if he had more of a hand in it I don't know so I guess I guess one thing I do want to talk about because we, we we talked about a lot of this uh early Nazism and kind of what that meant in the context of this point in time in which it took place but uh what would you actually think of like the actual segment of this movie where you have the the Fritz character actually you know trying to woo the Jewish heiress and uh uh, and we have the big late movie revelation about him, and that feels, uh, in a way, like kind of siloed off from the rest of the movie. But it's 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 being consistently told throughout. What do you make of that part of the movie in particular? Um, so, as a as a background, that that entire subplot was not in the musical. Ah, okay. That was in the original um, the writing from the the author. It was a, a different um, I think book that he wrote, but. Hmm. I thought it was it was very sweet, um, but granted, he had foresight. If he had just continued playing off that he was a Protestant the entire time, he never would have drawn attention to himself. He actually opened himself to risk for the sake of love. Putting himself out there and putting his, his true religion, his true being out there for the rest of the world for the sake of love is very much... You know what's going to happen to them. You already see it happening with with them, the Nazis killing her dog, leaving it on her, her doorstep. But even the most wealthy Jewish people were not necessarily spared as a result of um, the situation. If, if they're lucky, they made it up. They made it over here, and that's about exactly. It. And, and and we really don't know. And there's even like inclinations and jokes that um, they make about. For instance, Maximilian is like he's he's an Argentina. He's not an Argentina. There's a likely chance he actually did go to Argentina. Oh yeah, <laughs> biggest yeah. And, and, and they, they bring these things into perspective, and it, I find it ironic that they get married, they have a Jewish ceremony, and then you don't see the two of them ever again throughout the entirety of the movie. Almost as if to say that them ousting him, ousting himself as a, as a Jewish person was was a death sentence. Yeah, you don't really need to see him the rest of the movie because you know what's going to happen to him, and it's not pretty. It, it's not, and, and it's actually it's a it's a Shakespearean theme that once you have no more use for a character, you no longer see them on the stage, and you've effectively killed them off. They're they're used to, oh, they're okay. used for a certain aspect, and the aspect was basically to draw attention to. The fact that even though she she probably would have been saved if he had continued to pretend to be a Protestant and she married him, knowing that he was Jewish, but still played it off that she married a Protestant, they probably would have been saved. They probably would have been okay. But now 
it really leaves their future and their, um, you know, their safety in jeopardy as a result of that. Obviously, as a Jewish person, I found it very sweet to see the marriage ceremony on the screen. But as someone who's looking to characterization, he they, they're trying to whitewash themselves the entire time by taking English lessons, and then they just draw attention their their, their heritage, and it just it, it it puts their characterization in jeopardy as a result of it. Yeah, you know, and I I, I agree with you, and just said it was really moving. It's like a cool trick the movie plays because as we just talked for almost forty minutes about other just about the the, the the entirety of the rest of the movie besides that, and I. It's just something that's there, almost secondary to like the, the main thrust of the movie. But at the same time, it's kind of impressive what it pulls off because uh, Fritz starts off as really not a particularly likable character, and he's uh, just talking about how he wants wants just to woo her for her money, and that's basically it. And he's going to use her dad to like try and like help his career and all that. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, fine. That's you can have some kind of friend character in any given movie that's going to like you know maybe not exactly have the best intentions when it comes to the opposite sex or whatever and it is what it is and it's just kind of cool how like the movie it, it, it's it's really like kind of maybe the, the one of the third or fourth most important story in the movie and at the same time it like it gives this guy an entire arc and it comes to a, a pretty moving end when he almost seemed like comic relief to start and i just think that's a that's a pretty impressive thing for the movie to pull off when it had like much several other things on its mind at the same time with which that received a lot more screen time so. yeah, absolutely and i also find it ironic um the, there, there was a moment in the movie i actually had to stop and I had to rewind it because it definitely was a a me too moment um where where Natasha is describing their first interaction together where he pounces on her um, for Sally's um, suggestion. And she's saying, no, no, no. And then she gives into her passion, kind of like a Stockholm syndrome in in a sense, Um, mostly because she's fighting with herself as somebody who's a Jewish woman who wants to be with a Jewish man. They had a very conservative upbringing and it's not that experience from what we're told. Exactly. And she, she's a foil character for Sally. Um, obviously Sally being so sexually liberated and very open with her, um, with her sexuality. Um, but at the same time, her coming from money and her being conservative is that's never going to be Sally's life. Sally is not going to, um, make it big as a star, no matter what's going to happen because she herself is, is doomed to fail based off of her own flaws. She, she, encapsulates herself in a bubble preventing her from succeeding ever because she is so self-aware of her flaws for sure and i i'm glad you even mentioned that it was kind of like a me too moment in that sequence with natalia because i that was a point i don't think i really finished officially making earlier when i was talking about just what sally was having to deal with in her career and again it's just i don't know it just feels like it's pretty impressive how uh, ahead of the time the movie was on so many different fronts and i think that it's something you couldn't have even known at the time when it won eight oscars so that just that just shows how well it's aged uh did you have any other i mean did you have any other thoughts on the music you kind of told us how some of it did translate a little differently from the play but is there uh do you have do you have any other feelings on like as someone that is so familiar with the play like if did you have any specific song that you thought even translated better to the screen or any other just thoughts on how they pulled off any of the performances in particular because i don't really have a reference point for it but i thought you might have some additional thoughts before we wrapped up um, I have two additional thoughts, one about the music, one about one quote in the movie that I just have to draw attention to because yeah. I think one of the most underrated quotes in cinematic history. Yeah. It just makes me laugh every time. So the 
typically speaking in a musical, the way that the um, I'm I'm going to say the the grid is set up is that a song describes a moment that is happening and it it brings you into that moment. This did the opposite. A moment happened on screen and the song sort of trailed it off to the next chapter. I, I found it fascinating that they did that. It's almost, um, you know, like a, a, at the end of like a vaudeville show where you have like a little instrumental number and then the next, um, the next dancer or actor or a performer comes onto the stage. Um, and obviously the show being called Cabaret, the, the every single song takes place in the kick club except for one um obviously being the the climax of the movie and the moment where there's a transition between uh nazis being ostracized and nazis being accepted widely mm-hmm. um but but overall the use of um music in the film is, is brilliant it's very explanatory and it it is also giving a secondary uh, facet to the the actions that we had already seen on screen. Yeah, that's the one point I'll make is that I'm not usually I'm not really a huge fan of sung through musicals. It's just not really my thing. I I, I don't, I'm not a sophisticated enough listener of music to really just kind of get it and be able to zone in when it's only being there's only song throughout the entire runtime. Well, this- this- like rent, where all they're describing is how are they going to pay their rent? Sung multiple times. Yeah, just not my just not my thing. And I actually, but I, I just thought this was even different than your regular movie that has songs in it and that I kind of liked how just it felt like each song was commenting on something that came before and adding a little something and I and I just appreciated that yeah and on top of it it's not it's not a typical musical because the actors themselves are supposed to be singing they're in a cabaret club they're entertainers that is their job every person who sung on that screen would have been singing in in I'm gonna say in a real life setting it doesn't feel like it's fake it doesn't feel like it's forced in any way and on and on top of that what was the point that i was going to bring up sorry just give me a second to think about it um it was a good one you said you had one other quote you liked unless you were still going to yes yeah but that's not um uh, oh yeah so and on top of that Mm -hmm. what i find interesting is that joel gray's entire performance is done through song he speaks sure but if you go to the soundtrack every single quote that he has everything your spoken word is on a song so should add is, his is also an oscar-winning performance yes this is this is not well we did mention that it was oscar-winning performance and tony award-winning performance right oh yeah but it is one of the only oscar-winning performances where the entire part is technically sung through hmm. it is technically part of a song um i think the um the other one there was a nominee anna margaret in uh the who's tommy she was nominated and she sung her entire part is, as well. is, isn't lame is all sung through i've never actually seen lame is is all sung through but she speaks as well oh, okay. um they they do kind of break it up but technically lame is 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 an opera um so it does not have many speaking parts so i'm gonna say yes that will also count in my mind um but but joel gray Obviously, his daughter, the famous um, baby from Dirty Dancing, his his performance, I found I found very interesting and very lively, and at the same time, very sad and dark because he's the MC that welcomes you, and he knows exactly what's going to happen. It's a it's a very archetypal role. I actually, did not I actually did not know until just now that he was Jennifer Gray's father. Yeah, that's, 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 well, that's a cool fact. He, he was married. You mentioned he was married for a while. He was married until the '80s. Uh, broke up with his wife and never remarried. And he commented in a later interview in the mid 2000s that he characterizes himself as a gay man. Yeah. 
but he's also famously known as the wizard from Wicked. Um, he, he is just a, he's an outstanding performer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, that really you have an opportunity to see his... his um, you have an opportunity in the movie Cabaret to see what it would be like to see this in a musical setting. Every, everybody is just extremely talented. Obviously, you know, poor, poor Michael York, who has one of the most um, mellifluous voices I think of <laughs> any British man, is kind of he kind of falls to the side. And yeah, we barely talked about him. I didn't really have much. No, else we to don't say. really need to talk about him. There's only one part of the entire movie, which is my second point, that he actually does something great, which is oh, screw Maximilian. I am. So am I. Yeah, I, 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 I was it? I was it? Or was it? I do. So do I. I, had, I actually had I do, so do I, that. That, yeah. that was the one quote I had written down for the entire movie too. It's a great moment. It is a great moment, and it's the time where they really bond together. And, and, and it actually, this the menage that happens in the in the movie also off in the book because it happened in real life. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is based off of the actual author's real life situation. In 1930s Germany, I and mean, think about it, like even even in in 2020, that's a little bit of a faux pas. <laughs> so I, I just find it, I find it very ahead of its time in, in so many different senses because you're, you're not looking at the high class. The only high class character you, you really have is Natalia. Everybody else is is technically paycheck to paycheck, lower lower class, living in um, another woman's home. I, I, I mean, they, they don't. Obviously, um, Brian, being a PhD student, he has some, you know, sort of class. But at the same time, he's still a student. Yeah, you know, one other thing, I don't think he's a very good student. Uh, he's, getting a PhD, <laughs> he's getting a PhD in language, but he can't even answer why the G is silent in phlegm. I'm like, come on, man! Like, you got to be able to explain your language a little bit if you're going to hold yourself out as a tutor. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It was a thought I had, and there was, I think, there was like one other point in that scene where he was supposed to be the teacher or whatever, and it was like, and you don't really actually seem to know a lot about this. <laughs> um, uh, every PhD student is, uh, you know, is the, is the top of their class. Then yeah. I feel, I, I, I actually, I feel like it's done in a, in a very correct way why he can't pronounce it because he's got as many flaws as any of the other people in the movie he's not perfect yeah he's, he kind of holds himself out that way at first and then he can't really help but be himself yeah uh do you, do you have any other final thoughts on cabaret maya um if you were a fan of chicago if you're a fan of a good musical and you haven't seen cabaret it should be the next movie on your list yeah, and I and I'll just say like as I mentioned earlier, I'm not I, I'm definitely not a big fan of sung through musicals, but just in general like musicals just like they're just not my thing. But I think this has so much else going for it, and the music just really adds. I t- we touched on it briefly, but the music just it really adds to the plot in a really different, unique type of way. I feel like, and maybe not that unique, but at least unique for the kind of things I'd seen. It felt pretty smart in how the music commented on the plot, and I thought it, it was only really enhanced by the music, which isn't something that I can say for a lot of musicals that I that I watch. And and, it, and also just, I mean, really impressive with how, I mean, Maya and I talked so much more about the history than the movie actually addresses head on. It is just really smart about how it uses a lot of that history as its own backdrop for what's going on and allows it to affect the tone of this movie that, yes, is kind of cheery like your typical musical at the time for most of its runtime, but like at the same time, like has it like a something else darker hanging over it and it does it in a way that's like doesn't just beat you over the head with Nazi symbolism. It's there, but it's not explicitly explicitly there for a lot of it but it's still it's still present and i think it's really smart in how it handles that 
Um, I actually have one final thought. Yeah. If you've ever seen Schitt's Creek, um, or if anybody mm. who's listening to this has ever seen Schitt's Creek, one of the better, uh, I'm going to say covers of Cabaret is done in that show, and it's done in a very brilliant way. So if you liked Cabaret or if you like Schitt's Creek, I feel like the natural next thing to watch is the other. It, it, it just it ties in very well. Well. So it's funny, I mean, because my next question was going to be to you to do the, you know, hey, have you been watching anything recently recommendation thing we do at the end of the podcast these days? And I, and I, my answer to that question at some point in the last few months was Shit's Creek, because I've watched the entirety of Shit's Creek in quarantine, but when I actually watched it, I had not seen Cabaret. So now I feel like I need to go back and like, like watch the Cabaret episode again, or, and like, just to like actually fully be able to appreciate it because i just obviously was a little ignorant at the time even though i knew enough i know i knew enough about it to know that like to know that it would be the kind of thing that moya rose would fancy herself as someone that like should be capable of performing at any time at the drop of a hat but like i feel like i would have have an even greater appreciation for it now if i went back and watched whatever that season four or five whichever one it is that it's like just a a running theme throughout throughout the entire season so i'm glad you reminded me of that because i just had totally forgotten about it because i finished the series like about a little over a month ago so uh yeah uh it's funny because um you should also watch the behind the scenes for that because most of the people in that audience were actual actors and um stage crew who did not see any of the um the practices for um for the actors and really saw them for the first time when they performed on that stage they performed live for everybody really? and were blown away by it so th- that's a, a nice little uh, blurb and if if you like Shit's creek um I, i'm not going to say this is my recommendation because i have one in particular yes. i've been watching this is great but if you like Shit's creek you should watch best in show which is um one of the first iterations of um of eugene levy and um Catherine O'Hara. Thank you. Um, t- together, and they are just a, a great duo with each other. It, it was cracking up the entire time. Yeah, I feel like I need to go back and. I mean, I know she's kind of a legend, and I and I've seen obviously a few of her things, but like I know there's a lot more out there that I haven't watched. So that's I a good. Myself for forgetting her name. That's a good, good good reminder of stuff to add to my list. So, what is your recent streaming recommendation? Something else you've been really enjoying in quarantine? The Sopranos. We just oh yeah, you mentioned it. Yeah, so you've never watched The Sopranos before. No, and it's ironic because my last name is Sore, and my brother's bar mitzvah theme was the Sopranos. So uh. that was his bar mitzvah theme. We have things all around the house with it. I had never, I only seen one episode of that show, which was when I went to college. My dad showed me the, the episode college. where Tony takes oh Meadows to college. That's a great episode. And it, it's a, it's a great show, and I'm only on season. I think we're about to finish season three. I am with my head in my hands the entire time amazed by the acting, the directing, the writing. Everything is it's perfect. And as a huge Breaking Bad fan, I was always, you know, a, a naysayer. I'm like, there's no way that there's any show that's better than Breaking Bad. And oh boy, was I wrong. And I haven't even gotten to the like halfway through yet. Yeah. So I've been thinking about going back and like rewatching The Sopranos. I'm, I'm working my way through like just because I have so much time in quarantine. It's like I need to like tackle some of the big commitment shows that like I've never gotten around to that are because it's it's like a big commitment to like start a six season show. You know what I mean? And yeah. like The Sopranos. So I but like I did that with Shit's Creek because that was one everyone had been telling a lot of people people i trust had been telling me to watch i'm now like 
uh, on season three of six of Justified, which I'm really enjoying. But like, I, I there, there's value in like going back and watching stuff. But I mean, I've wa- I've re- I rewatched all of Deadwood last year, leading up to the Deadwood movie on HBO. But that's only three seasons. It should have had more. It, got, it came to an abrupt end. I've watched yeah. I've watched The Wire twice, which is my favorite of all time. And like Sopranos is one of the big ones I haven't rewatched. And I watched it. The only time I did watch it was about like six years ago. So it's like I owe it another another trip. But it's just it's 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 a lot. So after I finish Justified and I don't have like another big seven season show or something just on deck, then maybe that'll be when I finally do it. I also kind of want to go back and watch Parks and Rec on Netflix before it like goes, before it leaves and goes to Peacock. Cause I don't know if I'm actually going to buy Peacock. Uh, and I've seen all of Parks and Rec twice, but it's like my, one of my two favorite sitcoms of all time. So it's like, I want to like go see it before it's not as accessible. So like I have a few things on my list, you know? I, I think that you, you should give uh, Parks and Rec another rewatch, and I will make a commitment to you that when The Many Saints of Newark comes out, which is the prequel movie that they're doing, um, prequel to Sopranos, I will review that with you. I, okay. I promise you. I think that might actually be the, something – I don't know if they're doing that. They might be doing that for theaters actually, not just HBO. I mean if we ever have theaters again. It's, I think it's both. Yeah. I think it's, so, uh, it's a combo. But yeah, so I, I forgot. And I guess it's probably going to come out next year at some point at this point. I don't think that's, I think they might've already filmed it and I'm, I'm really looking. So that, that's a good, now that you reminded me that that is coming, I, I will make the, our Sopranos rewatch a thing that I need to do at some point in the next year. I don't know if you saw James Gandolfini's son is going to play young Tony in that who, if you, I watched the deuce on HBO and he put, he, he's in the deuce and he's actually really good. So I, um, I, I, I'm at, at first I was a little skeptical of that, but then I actually enjoyed his, he had a minor supporting role in the deuce, but he's actually pretty good. We think he looks just like his dad. <laughs> I think it's it's very very sweet and it's an, it's a nice homage. But imagine being James Gandolfini's son, and for your prep for the movie where you play a younger version of your father, you have to watch The Sopranos for the first time. Seeing what Tony does in that show, I would be traumatized. <laughs> I mean, I'd be completely traumatized. Yeah, I don't know if I have like another my own streaming recommendation because I've like I've just been. I've, I've done a lot of podcasts in the last week, so I'm like trying. I'm trying to trying to like catch up on like what I haven't already recommended, and I think I just talked about just about everything on my list at the moment. So I will uh, I will second Maya on saying going back to watch The Sopranos. I I you know I rewatched uh, Meek's Cutoff earlier today, which is a Kelly Record movie that probably my least favorite of the movies of hers I've seen, but I know I'm going to be doing a podcast on First Cow, her newest movie, at some point in the next month, and I wanted to give it another shot. And I, I definitely highly recommend it, even if it's not one of my favorites, because I know it's kind of like one that's kind of going to be of a piece with First Cow, because it kind of takes place in the 1800s in the Pacific Northwest, and you know, I feel like you should everyone should watch Kelly Reichert movies, because she's uh, one of the most underrated female American filmmakers of the last 25 years. So I recommend watching her stuff. A lot of it's on Hulu and everyone can do that. Um, Maya, uh, thanks for joining. We'll have to get you back at some point, you know, before we have a Marvel movie again, because who knows when that's going to be. So we'll talk about having, we'll hopefully have you joining us again for something else in the next couple months. So it's a pleasure as always. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> uh, coming up next, I don't know exactly what we're going to have yet, but we're going to have like, I don't know, something in the next couple of weeks. I have like a whole list of stuff as I always have. It just depends on, you know, who picks up the phone and joins me next, but it could be any number of things. We have, I have some more old movies to revisit, but also maybe some newer Netflix releases to talk about. So uh, who knows? Everyone though, stay tuned for that and we'll see you next time.